once you've decided to make a change, you cannot stay in a place that denies you that chance to change. Welcome to the first episode of Queer Voices. Queer Voices is an international podcast. We uplift and celebrate voices who break with norms of gender identity and sexual orientation. Around the globe, one interview at a time. My name is Nora. I'm recording from my home in Berlin, Germany. My guest today is Citraka St. Michael. When the idea of this podcast first popped into my head, I instantly knew I wanted to interview Sitraka. We had met only once, through friends, and seven years ago. But his wisdom and compassion radiate from deep inside and made a long-lasting impression on me. And so, I was not surprised to learn that Sitraka was studying divinity and emotional intelligence at the Harvard Divinity School. I did wonder, however, how a flamboyant gay man like Sitraka was holding up in a deeply religious environment. In this interview, Sitraka will talk about redefining his faith and will let us know why coming out is really about coming to terms with oneself. He is now becoming a lawyer, so expect some job interview advice as well. I do apologize for poor sound quality at times, as this interview was recorded through Skype. Also, the language spoken in Madagascar is called Malagasy, and you'll hear me say it wrong. So let's start where it begins, in the place Sitraka was born, in Madagascar. So uh, I was born in the capital city, which we call Tana for uh, convenience. So I was born in 1986, so about, yeah, about 32 years ago. Yes, I was born to a single unmarried mother who had the privilege and and benefit of the strength and support of many strong women in the family, both locally and internationally, because about half of my extended family has always lived in France. And so kind of grew up with the benefit in between those two places in a number of respects. Yeah, so that's where it began. So there, there are three things about my bringing, I think, that, that I continue to take with me. Number one is our love of food. What role did food play when you were a child? It always provided a constant source of stability. It didn't matter what happened. Well, what happened still happened. But, you know, when it was mealtime throughout my childhood and, you know, most of my teenage years, there was always this expectation that I had. And, and I knew it was going to happen that come dinner time. We were all going to sit and eat. Right. That must provide a source of stability. Yes, absolutely. You were also mentioning that next to food, there was something else that still reflects in your life now. What was that? Yeah. So it's my love of clothing. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I grew up you know, around a lot of women who always looked stunning. What did they wear? Oh, really elegant, simple things. My family always put a really strong premium on simplicity and elegance. And I remember, you know, when I was young, I was the kind of child who wanted to go everywhere with everybody. Mm -hmm. But but the condition was always that I had to look really good if I wanted to to go out with people. 
think the third thing. Or let's let's yeah. um because I've seen you and I know you look stunning, but our listeners haven't seen you, so maybe you could just quickly say what you enjoy wearing. How do you look like so people can get a picture? <laughs> well, so my go-to business attire will usually be a, a very crisp white shirt with a deep navy blue suit. Mm. That's I find that very crisp. You know, my, my very first suit that was tailored for me, I think I was about, well, I was 12 or something at the time. Wow, that is early. So actually, right now, I'm wearing a striped Henley shirt with a cape that's got a hood on it and a pair of corduroy pants in my apartment mm. right now. So And it is Sunday. Yeah, it is Sunday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. Yes. So I understand you're taking a love for food with you and a good sense of style. And then what's number three? Mm, I think a general commitment to hospitality. I think growing up, welcoming people to the table in the house was always something that I benefited from mm -hmm. and something that I know I have to keep paying forward because, you know, I am who I am today because many of my relatives and extended family welcomed me in their homes and at their tables, especially again for food. And, um, you know, I've always tried to make sure that my home is a place where people find the healing and joy and support and community that they mm -hmm. need to sustain themselves. So mm -hmm. the three things, food, dress and hospitality. Yeah. To be honest, all of this sounds so warm and beautiful to me that listening to you, I can't help but wonder How did you ever come up with the idea to leave Madagascar as early on? Oh, <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, well, again, you know, life is complicated, right? So, yeah, I mean, I've only told you one side of the story. I am not, I'm not from a quote-unquote normal family, which means that, you know, my mother is unmarried, right? Mm -hmm. um, But what does this mean in everyday life? Well, it means that you're the only one. You get off school and most people are being picked up by their parents, you know, in the cars, You know, he's like, oh, okay, well, I'm the only one. No, you know, that, you know, my mom has to work all the time. Mm -hmm. But wherever you go, in your school, your neighborhood, your church, in, in just a very prescriptively conservative environment where, you know, everybody has mommy and daddy mm -hmm. and you don't. Right. I don't think I can sort of go back and identify like one moment. It goes always a daily, a daily right. thing. I mean, I knew very early on how different I was going to be. How did you know? Well, I think um, a lot of a lot of bullying from kids mm. early on. I'm sorry. Um, no, 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 no. This is fine. I mean, you know, I mean, kids are mean. Yeah, um, that is true. You know, it's like yeah, yeah you know, we do we 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 start doing terrible things to each other very yes. early on as human beings, right? But I think a lot of bullying, and especially like it always had to do with. I mean, the the fact that I was a single parent child was not the main thing but you know people were a lot of people were just like really kind of astonished at how feminine i was mm -hmm. um you know it's like you know how how can you be so feminine i think like the guys in my neighborhood and in my school you know had a nickname had sort of this like slur that was basically the, the best translation of it is a it's a woman's picture is uh -huh. what they would call me you know I meaning you know when they see me they see a woman or whatever it is yeah. what's the word in Madagash? it's sarmbav okay Okay. Yeah. So, so literally, a woman's face or a woman's picture was the. And that is a slur. That well, is yeah, disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And you know what was even like funnier now in hindsight is that I would have so many women call me that, while well, girls call me that at the time. Wow. And I'm like, 
wow, you really, but anyway, yeah, mm. but th- that's yet another reason why I left because there is not really a depth of critical thinking there that is encouraged. I think the culture was very intent on making you feel worthless about or crippled by. But again, I'm, um, I'm very good at saying no to anything that wants to make me feel worthless or crippled by anything. And ultimately, Madagascar wanted to make me feel, feel that way in many, many ways. And that's why I, uh, I said very early on, as soon as I had a chance to leave, bye. And what was that chance to leave? When did you hear about it? How did uh-huh. you even learn about yeah. it? Right. Believe it or not, it was in, in a newspaper. So uh, my mom, you know, used to read the newspaper all the time. So there was this announcement for a scholarship for the United World Colleges, which is a network of uh, international schools across mm-hmm. the world. So I applied the first time in 2003 and I was the runner up. And then I applied again the year after. What and did you have to do for the application? Well, I had to put together a CV and I had to write an essay. And that essay was in French. The year when I reapplied, my essay was in English. Interesting. Because, um, yeah, I know. Yeah, because actually, I think one of the things that I also discovered, so when I applied for the first time, although I had been doing very well in school for English, it was all written English. And so then during the interview, when they actually started to talk to me, I found out that actually that I was not really good at speaking English. And so I took the year after that to really sharpen my English speaking skills in an environment that speaks no English, mind you. So, but I mean, thank God. Uh, the BBC was my friend. So I spent a lot of time listening to the BBC. Uh, You just mentioned that you talked to them or they talked to you. How can I picture this? Was this an internet call or did people actually come to Madagascar to see you? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. There was a selection day. There was a final, a finalist day mm-hmm. um, at the, the headquarters of an organization in Tana. So that's where I went. Ah, okay. And, you know, it was one of those things, again, you know, it's like um, very typical, right? So everybody there was with, except for one person, I think, everybody there was uh, was there with their parents, both of their parents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as is my want, you know, I come in on my own <laughs> yes. and, you know, and you know, I'm the only candidate you know who comes by themselves and so so I think Madagascar taught me really well in terms of sharpening my ability to um to be myself and to be an individual mm-hmm. um, but I knew that at some point if I really wanted to be all that I could be as a, as a person I had to leave mm. um, and I've been very lucky really and um, what gave you the sense that chance. did you Did you just want to leave or did you hear about the U.S., Canada and the news? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely, 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 definitely. So I was lucky that when I reapplied for the scholarship, as I mentioned, I got to choose between two locations. So one was Canada and the other one was another place, was a place in Europe, actually. But I, I wanted to go as far as possible and into as new an environment as I could. And so chose to go to Canada instead. Do something new. Yeah, exactly. So let's move forward. Congratulations, you got the scholarship. And then mm-hmm. I imagine you got on an airplane. You yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you walk into Pearson yes. College. When one of the reasons that you left Madagascar was this difficulty as being seen as different and feeling different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what your experience was like at Pearson. Was there a difference there? Was there an improvement? 
Oh yeah, well definitely. I think I was much more. I mean, I knew that I was in a, in a different environment where I was going to be able to talk about things. And actually, one of the things I remember quite fondly from my first year was I was part of an ethics club there, and I hosted a conversation on single parenting. I put it together. I, I organized it. Quite a few people d- did come, um, but I remember it as being sort of this really transformative moment when. I finally got to actually, you know, host a conversation about something that I was very ashamed of, but also, you know, actually I ended up like meeting folks, you know, other people in my school who were children of single parents. And so that, you know, that again made me feel a little less alone, I guess, mm-hmm. kind of because I knew that I was, that I would meet people who had, you know, who had gone through some of the same things that I had to go through. It's always an amazing thing when you're able to engineer opportunities to turn things that we're supposed to make you feel ashamed of yourself into things that are really the the heartbeat of your dignity and your power yes. uh, as a human being. So I've had the chance to do that, you know, as a single parent child, I've had the chance to do that as a gay man as well. And so, yeah, so Bentley just keeps on mm. going from there. Yeah, why don't we talk about this? Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> going Let's. left and right. Um was there for you as a as a gay man was there a moment like this as well where you really found that suddenly you had the courage in yourself to turn this this shame around into yes absolutely absolutely and and you know one thing that i didn't mention but of course it's quite obvious is that you know i had been i think a very big part of leaving madagascar so for me was like knowing i had always been attracted to men you know for as long as i was aware right and like i just knew i mean although you know i had met some other uh, gay folks in Madagascar and stuff, you know, I knew that I would want to go somewhere else to just to breathe a little easier, um, you know, as, um, as, as a man to that end, right? And so, and so that played a role into my departure. I think the other, uh, yeah, for me, so, oh yeah, so coming up took me forever. Right. Um, same here. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you, you know, and, uh, also another thing that I've, that I actually neglected to mention uh, in terms of things that I've taken with me is I, um, I was also raised in a very religious family. Um, and, and really just, you know, still going to church every Sunday was a thing, but I think more fundamentally a, a commitment to rely on a, on, on something bigger than yourself in life. And, and, and that's a part of my journey here, but that is relevant because a very big part of what took me so long to finally stop lying to myself and to the world about the mm-hmm. fact that the only kind of person that I want to spend the rest of my life with and share my life with also happens to have a penis between their legs. It's just the <laughs> fact, you know, I mean, I, you know, I really tried, I tried to, you know, I'm not very proud of things I tried to do to be with women. Yeah. Um, that was not, it was just so unnecessary and just so anyway, I know, but, I know, I know the feeling, you know, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know you kind of make do right and you and you deal um sure. but uh for me i think you know very i was uh, profoundly worried about um the implications that um living my life openly as a gay man would have in terms of my relationship with god you know because you know I, and my mother really played with that quite a bit you know i, I would Did get a lot know? of like were you out threats. to her then or was this uh, just well, something well i mean 
I actually believe that parents know. I mean, I, 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 always, I was always too ashamed to acknowledge it, but like, I'm pretty sure she knew all along. But you know, again, I think it's easier to pretend that something that you wish did not exist. Right. So she didn't help you. She... Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, so yeah. But uh, one thing that happened was, I think this was my third, my junior year of college. So my third year, I got to spend the fall in Paris um, for mm -hmm. study abroad. What happened there um, is that I had been very busy up to that point and actually had some, I had a little time to think about my life when I was in Paris. And then uh, surprisingly, I started having these daydreams and thoughts about getting married. You know, I never thought that, uh, that those thoughts would ever get into my psyche because I was like, you know, I'm just going to be working hard and doing my thing and whatever. But then what was really interesting to me was that, you know, in my daydreams, right, I would picture myself you know, into the, in this beautiful cathedral. And, you know, and of course, just because of me, I am entering, right? I am entering, you know, the sanctuary, right? You're walking down the aisle and somebody waits for me at the end, right? And for the first time during that fall, I remember that in my, in my imagination, the person that um, was waiting for me, um, was a man. He did not have a face, but I knew, and I, and I was getting comfortable with the fact that that person mm -hmm. waiting for me at the end of the aisle was going to be um, a man as well, and mm -hmm. that more importantly, I was going to be able to to want God's blessing onto that relationship, mm -hmm. and ultimately, you know, to face to face God and say, you know, here is how I have lived my life. And I am thankful that I, you know, got to share my life with this one person. And I think this is something that's more um, resonant with folks with deep religious background, backgrounds and commitments. But that was a huge shift because I knew that I was ready. You know, one never knows what happens happens after you die. But, you know, then I still believe that, you know, that I might have to face God at some point. Right. But like I knew that when I when my imagination had shifted in that respect, that I was I was prepared Mm -hmm. to to meet God and say, I have loved and be lo been loved mm -hmm. by this person. And he happens to have a penis between his legs, mm -hmm. wh whoever this person is. So when, when I found out, when I really felt within my spirit um, and at the core of who I am, that I was, I w there was no longer anything that I was afraid of in terms of what the, the consequences of finally being honest about who I desired was. And I, um, and so I did it, you know, so then, you know, went back to, um, Madagascar that winter and, uh, you know, and came out and that, that it did not it go very Mada well at all. But was, um, was Madagascar the place where you came out for the first time or did you actually talk with people? Um, in Paris um, before? Oh, this is interesting. No, actually, I did not talk to anybody in Paris at all. Oh. Um, This is really interesting. Actually, I hadn't thought about this. Um, yeah. 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 So Paris actually, was your place of self acceptance. And then. Yeah. 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 A place of. Yeah. Yeah. I usually say that I came out in Paris because, because I think ultimately the, the most important thing, you know, about coming out, if that's the thing, is, you know, you. It's ultimately about your relationship with yourself. Because, right. you know, you have to live, you know, in your body, you know, you have to live with your desires and you have to, you know, so ultimately, you know, the most important thing, right, <laughs> is, is what you, is your conversation with yourself, right? So I think I did a lot mm -hmm. of, I've been doing that a lot, but I think Paris gave me the space and the time and the beauty, literally, to do that. Yeah, and then I went back and actually I never, actually, I'm not sure if I've ever said that I was gay. Because they were just... Or well, in, in Paris, Madagascar. 
in Madagascar even, I think. Uh, or did I? Yeah, I might have. I can't remember. I actually, yeah, because I, I don't really think about these things. Um, well, what did you say? <laughs> well, we, we had just finished eating and then, you know, my mom brought it up. Uh, brought up the fact that I may be gay and that you know that you was a very heavy burden and then I just I just started crying mm. you know things like that and I think yeah because it, how did that go then sure if I, oh well I mean not well obviously mm. but um you know so but I mean what what was she going to do well she stop. wanted me to repent yeah mm-hmm. exactly as if this is something that you could stop Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I love, I yeah, I love this whole notion. Anyway, I'm, I'm so not going to get into what I think about um, mm, about really you know these um, these very um, puerile, ridiculous notions uh, mm-hmm. that people have about how desire um, mm-hmm. and love work. But anyway, so it didn't yeah. go well. But then you know, but but again, at the at the same time, um, I had the you know the guarantee and the and the power of a really good education because I, I was in Princeton at the time, right? Eventually, and so and you know I knew you know it's one of those things that you know you, you do um, expecting that it's going to be difficult, but also you know remembering that you've got you've got something to go back to, mm-hmm. and and you know and I remember you know um, leaving leaving then felt actually good. I was like yeah, I'm kind of happy that this um, that I did this, and then I, I just had a I had to go back very recently for a funeral. And, um, and I mean, every time I go back, which is not very often anymore, uh, it had been four years in my case, I, I feel much more in my own skin every time I go back, yes. you know, uh, you know, prouder, just more comfortable yes. um, every time, you know. And mm-hmm. so, 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 so yeah, so you, know, you, you kind of work through these things, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I think the, the first thing where I remember actually, um, distinctly saying, you know, acknowledging that I was gay verbally was, um, this one of, you know, this woman that I really tried so hard to date, um, you know, mm-hmm. so this was after Paris and like, was that spring, spring of 2010. And she asked me, you were me, back like, in Princeton. Uh, at that uh, time. I was back in Princeton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, she was, she was calling me and things. And then she's like, so are you gay? And then I was like, Yes. And then she was like, yeah. <laughs> and then she was like, oh my God. Anyway, so you know, she, she, she's a lovely woman, but, um. Uh, so she yeah, was thinking yeah. about it. How did you feel the moment she asked you? No, I mean, I was, um, I was glad that I did not miss a beat, you know. I, I, I responded very quickly and comfortably. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm, because uh, and you then, had you know, come to terms. Right, exactly. And then, you know, a few months later, there were, there was a whole bunch of, uh, suicides because of sight of bullying of, um, kids who were, who either were or looked gay in a lot of, uh, middle schools in the country. And, uh, I really mm-hmm. felt affected by that because that, that, that was me. You know, I mentioned, you know, growing up being bullied just because of who I was really mm-hmm. or you know, what I looked like in the eyes of other people. And, um, Decided that I had to do something and could do something, and so then I, I actually went in this. Um, so I took, I participated in the "It Gets Better" campaign. Um, What's this campaign? So How does it, it work so like? It, so it was basically a um, a response to the bullying that was happening in the in middle schools at the time. So the concept was that you know you would have people tell their stories about how it gets better. That you mm-hmm. know, right now you know you you might be in a small 
in a small community, in a small town, in a small county, whatever it is, but that ultimately you will come to a place where things will get better for you because things will just get bigger, right? So things will get easier in some way. And so... And now I understand that you do like the taste of North America and um Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Finally <laughs> decided to to stay at least for the moment and right. you live in Boston and mm -hmm. just telling your story, how you started coming out. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? It's also for me it's often a question like when I Uh, start a new job or something mm -hmm, do i just mm -hmm. casually mention my girlfriend at sure, some point or sure so i wonder mm -hmm. how do you feel in boston about coming out on this everyday regular basis yeah that's always a uh, a delicate question because you know it, it's so context dependent right and it also depends on you know uh, what the stakes are for you i think generally i have no qualms you know telling people that i'm gay i think like in some ways like I'm, i'm quite obviously gay i think in some way so i'm just like well yeah i know what it's like not to to feel comfortable as a gay man now in certain settings and thankfully i often get to avoid those settings because i'm just like you know what what are I, these I settings well i mean it depends right i mean certain you know certain office cultures they, they won't necessarily be homophobic but just like tremendously Just every, because everybody, no one there is gay and then there is no one for you to kind of relate to in a meaningful way or anything. And I mean, I'm very lucky. Next summer, I'm going to work at a firm that has a significant and fabulous gay community within it. I'm, I'm going to have to work a... really hard. Sorry, but are mm -hmm. you going to join? No, so my uh, my my summer uh, internship, yeah, yeah next mm. summer is mm -hmm. gonna be, yeah, and that did play an important role. I mean, it was not the main factor, but it was important to me to be in a place where I was going to have kind of my gay squad, so to speak, to go and have lunch with. Or How talk did you to know? How did you know that, that there's a gay squad at the slot? Oh uh, well, some of the partners uh, are gay. You know, the recruiter. Is openly gay. They were very upfront about how that was important to them mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the hiring. So yeah, and I and, and I appreciated that. It did not feel fake. It felt quite substantive, mm -hmm. and I'm very excited to be working with them. Yes, yes, that is very exciting. And I know that you must be having many of these positive encounters in Boston because it's such a liberal and open city. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I was wondering whether there are ever any negative encounters, and if so, what was the last one that you had? Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah, no, I'm very lucky to be in Boston uh, in that respect. Um, the The effect of um, conscious or unconscious homophobia, the scope of the effects, you know, it varies as you get older, right? So, I mean, I am no longer a gay bee, you know, I'm not a gay baby. You know, I've been out for a number of years now. I don't go out clubbing anymore because I find that exhausting. The, the places where I choose to go are designed with my safety and comfort in mind, right, in, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. But I think now, you know, especially you know, as, as, a, as a lawyer, I wouldn't say that these are negative things, but it, it's not pleasant and i'm interacting with somebody and i feel like there is something about me that i need to hide 
recently I was at a I was I, I was at a launch function, and um, so I wear a I wear a ring on my index finger, mm-hmm. you know, in solidarity with the LGBT movement and things like that. But I felt this weird pressure somehow to hide the ring that, I, and I had not taken it off you know, during this launch function. And and in my head, you know, I, I had no way of knowing whether the, the other people at the launch were uh, homophobic. I don't think they were, but there was mm-hmm. just like this, this this sense that I had that this piece of jewelry might make me look, and it's a very elegant ring. I, I think now I'm moving more into the space where I have to encounter sort of this tension between authenticity and, and assimilation. And, and that's, again, it's very context dependent, right? Because it's, that's what a lot of us in the, in the, in the corporate world have to somewhat deal with as people with minority identities. And the thing is, you know, you have, you just have to, yeah, it's a constant balancing act. Being authentic, of course, you know, is, is, is hard, but. But for you, yeah. what does it come down to in your everyday life? Can you tell me about a moment maybe where you were negotiating this very delicate balance? Uh, yeah, well, um, yeah, so I think for me, right, um, and this is, this is something that I, that I recommend to everybody, whatever your ambitions or goals might be, but you have to, my goal is to be a really good lawyer for now. Yes. Like, that's actually what I want to be able to do, right? And there are a number of things that have to happen in order for me to get to the point where I'm a really good lawyer. Uh, number one, enough to get good grades and then you get hired by a really phenomenal um, firm that's going to provide me with the resources and opportunities and challenges I need to really keep growing. So I've been very lucky to get all that lined up. But I think I'll just mention during the interview season, right? I usually always wear my ring because you know, it's a ring that's sort of been with me for What's so long now. What's the story of this ring? Where did you get it? Well, so I got it in Chicago the year after I graduated from college uh, during Fashion Week. There, that was my first year of being an adult, and you know, I was, you know, I felt like I was really, you know, leading a meaningful life because I was working, you know, at the gay center uh, as a gay man in Chicago and all things and things like that. Um, and so, and this ring was my, yeah, it was my first Fashion Week purchase. Nice. I'm a gay man, I love fashion things, things <laughs> like that, and so, so, so it's been with me. And I've, you know, I've worn it all the time, but I talked to a lot of people about the interview process and consciously chose not to have my ring on me, mm-hmm. you know, through, throughout interviews the interview process. Interviews for law school or which interviews? Uh, uh, sorry, for, uh, for law firms yeah, law more firms, generally. Okay. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, there though, you know, after talking to a lot of people and, and this is something that I highly recommend to anybody, like just talk to people who are in the field, um, just to kind of field what your, you know, what your decision has to look like. In my case, you know, the principle was that I did not want to create distractions away from my performance and personality and uh, potential as a lawyer. So ultimately, you know, so yeah, chose not to wear the ring. I had to remember that I was still going to be me throughout right. the process with or without the ring and so and then it worked out and then you, and now I wear the ring ah. more often now you know so but, you took yeah. it off to get in and now that you're you've entered the room you're showing your pride and you're showing your true personality there um well I mean I um I have yet to get there right I mean I you know I'm, I'm heading into that world next and so I mean uh, I'll see. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'll just see. You know, um, you know, there is a place for everything, right? And, you know, and I'm probably there. I think that there might be times when you know when I'm not wearing the ring, you know, and then who knows? You know, maybe I'll get married, then I actually have a 
a wedding ring on. You know, we'll, we'll see mm-hmm. what happens. Um, but but I do think that it, you know it is a negotiating um, exercise all the time. But right. I think the bottom line is you know just um, be focused on what what your goals are and um, make peace with some of the decisions you have to make mm-hmm. to achieve those goals. Yes, I will have to let you go soon. Um, mm-hmm. And before that, I would really love to um, come back to one aspect that uh, we already touched upon when you were talking about how you um, came to a higher degree of self-acceptance in Paris and mm-hmm. how that mm-hmm. went hand in hand with a change in your relation with God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what were the next steps you took? Did you move on to a new church? What did you do? Yes, 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 I did. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't, you cannot stay once you've decided to make a change. You cannot stay in a place that denies you that chance to change, right? So one of the more difficult, but ultimately very life-giving processes that I had to undergo was to actually let go of of the tradition that I was brought up with Mm -hmm. and to really lose that and get rid of that and rebuke that very actively uh, as far as it's... How do you do that? You stop going. Mm-hmm. You don't engage with the tradition, you know. My um, so even there was at a point Pearson and in Paris, you were still going to that same. Uh, which kind of church was it? Yeah, well, yeah. So th- that's actually an interesting question because nothing quite matches the religious setting that I was brought up in in Madagascar. But yeah, but I think I was still going to fairly literalist traditions before Paris. But then after that, I began to. When I had come out, I knew that I would still need church. I'm a deeply religious person. So what I ended up doing was to begin to just go to places where I felt more comfortable, where I felt like I was, you know, going to be all that I was, a person with a thinking mind and a loving heart all at the same time. And so eventually, long story short, but I found the the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. Um, The Episcopal Church was first introduced to me through a really great movie uh, or documentary that's called For the Bible Tells Me So. For the Bible and Tells Me So. And it tells me so, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it tells the story of Gene Robinson, who is the first openly gay bishop to have been consecrated in the Anglican Communion. I, and I recommend that highly to 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 anybody. One of my dear, dear friends uh, from college shared that movie with me our sec- our sophomore year of college, so before I had officially come out. And I remember just like crying mm. so much afterwards, you know. Desmond Tutu is also in that movie. Oh, yes. But you watched the movie, and then what's the next thing you did? How did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, yeah. Well, 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 I mean, I watched the movie, then, you know, I, 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 wrote, I wrote my mom this email decrying her deep homophobia, you know, how can God... What kind of God do you worship that you would treat me this way? Blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But more importantly, so throughout college, I was very blessed to be involved in the university chapel, mm-hmm. um, which was a really great place for me. But then I think when I, when I finished college, I knew that I was going to have to find a church for my own purposes. And so that's when I began to work my way through the Episcopal church. And I have been fully in it since 2014 now. Mm-hmm. 
and um, it's great. I mean, you know, I feel very at home in it. It's a very welcoming tradition. It's a very beauty-oriented tradition. What does that and, mean? Um, What is beauty orientation? Well, the vestments are really beautiful, so it's always a it's always a beautiful thing to see procession of ah. Episcopal clergy. So we're coming back full circle to style. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yes, we are. Something about the Episcopal tradition, well, and really the Anglican Communion generally, to me, embodies the best and the I think the most courageous forms of hospitality, and especially in its American version, so in, in the Episcopal Church. This is a church that is aware of its difficult history, but does not stop there, but actually stretches itself to expand its welcome. And it's a place where, you know, many openly gay people who love God and Jesus, like me, have found a home. Yeah. It's not a perfect home, but it's a pretty fabulous home. Mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm so thankful for it. And I, I love the Episcopal Church a lot. The, the Episcopal Church seems to be very meaningful to a lot of members of the LGBT community. Okay. So I'm very thankful for that. And, uh, and is there is there something in particular that the church does on a structural level to support and empower LGBTQ mm -hmm. folks? Yeah, yes. We have ordained openly LGBT priests. We have married people in our sanctuaries, same-sex couples in our sanctuaries mm -hmm. and, in, and in our churches. Mm -hmm. uh, we have honored the dignity of every human being. So, so fundamentally, so this is, uh, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but fundamentally what, what we Episcopalians are about are our baptismal vows. And we make five vows, as we know, when we reaffirm them. But for me, the most important one is the last one, which reaffirms our commitment to respect the dignity of every human being. That's beautiful. And and, and that, that is literally how we think mm. about our baptismal vows. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, that we believe in God and in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And as a result, our call in this world is to honor the dignity of every, of every human being. You know, when you see a church that, you know, will will acknowledge that someone is called to become a, a bishop or a priest and they happen to be gay and you as a very established church, you know, that is heir to a long tradition get to say okay yes mm -hmm. we will find a way mm -hmm. to make a home for you mm -hmm. that's you know and that's never you know hospitality is not easy mm -hmm. it, it's always hard there are always new accommodations to be made there's always really tough conversations to be had relationships to be reconfigured or lost for that matter but i just love how ambitious and how how, how fabulous mm -hmm. the church has been mm -hmm. and i'm you know i'm very proud to be a part of mm -hmm. it and when my time comes in whatever capacity it is i hope to also play my role in affirming the dignity of every human being through the church or otherwise i really wish you best of luck and best of courage for this path uh thank you something that thank I you see you doing Thank you, thank you, um, thank you. Yeah, well, and, and thank you for uh, taking the time to listen to so many stories. I hope that my story gives somebody strength and power and a reminder I'm of sure their dignity does. as well. I'm sure it does. Way. Mm -hmm. Citrak, I thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story of with course. us. It's, of it's course. It's very moving and inspiring for me to listen to you. And All I right. Hope it well, I'm glad. We'll do the same for, and I think it will do the same for many others. Thank you so much. And you as well. Talk to you soon. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Ciao. Bye bye.
So this is it. This has been the first episode of Queer Voices and you were right there. It would be amazing if you could subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favorite podcast player to the show. Um, new work will be out soon and post about it on social media so your friends can hear about it. Um, and if you do have any feedback or comments, then please let us know at hi at queervoices.de, which is hi at q-u-e-e-r-v-o-i-c-e-s.net. I also want to thank uh, the whole team, as this has really been a community effort. A big shout out to Mira for composing this beautiful music. Uh, another one to Fair for designing the logo and helping with social media. And Alina for help with the website. Last but not least, I want to thank the Aktionsgruppenprogramm of Engagement Global, financed by the Federal Ministry of Economic Cooperation and Development, who uh, supported us and helped finance this podcast and made it possible. So thank you so much. Um, we already have new work in the pipeline. So um, see and hear you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>